0: actually that was one of the more surreal things that i that i did the the new pope well i've forgotten the word inaugurated but anyway new pope comes on board um i got paid by the bbc to live tweet the entire inauguration um as this fictional character henry 8.0
1: welcome to power to speak the podcast I'm Jackie Goddard and I work with entrepreneurs, leaders and speakers to make them excited about sharing their thoughts and ideas with an audience. With this podcast, I have the privilege of speaking with successful creatives, business owners and thought leaders about the importance of creativity for work and life. And I get to hear about their unique journeys too. I've been inspired, educated, and enthused by every person I've interviewed, and today's guest is no exception. Enjoy. So hello, and welcome to Power to Speak, the podcast, and today I'm joined by Glenn, Glenn Long. Glenn is uh, an online course mentor and an ex-comedy writer for the BBC, so welcome, Glenn.
0: Thank you very much, Jackie. Lovely to be here, lovely to see you.
1: And you, um, I'm. I mean, I'm excited about both of those things. Actually, I'm excited about the fact that you are, from what I can tell, a a, a, a complete guru when it comes to com- online course creation. So we'll we'll talk about that because that's something I'd like okay. to yep. begin with. But the ex comedy writer is kind of really. <laughs>
0: what, what
1: draws me into this conversation And now we've we've met each other uh, uh probably a good year or so ago before lockdown or maybe during lockdown. yeah right, i think we, we yeah
0: we've met in a couple of uh online. in-person communities before we all got locked down and then um, yes kept in contact since then
1: absolutely so we're part of the uh you are the media community which we are we're both sort of big fans of so tell me glenn how how then where did the where did where did that kind of bug for writing cuz obviously everything you do including the course creation is to, is is writing based so where did that come from
0: it is and i don't it crept up on me i think i mean i i liked reading as a child and i have a vague recollection of being a really young child and enjoying writing stories but i wasn't one of those kids that was constantly writing but i did find in my uh I always loved comedy so I think that was a um that was a sort of guiding light if you like I was into all the, the sitcoms whether it's sort of porridge or blackadder or faulty Towers, all of those classics and I think at some level I recognized that the, the writing in those series was, was outstanding um, but it didn't really come to anything until I was at university and um, was lucky enough to be around the the footlights guys at Cambridge and he uh, put it off I think out of pure cowardice until my third year but got involved in a bit of sketch comedy and, and writing with a friend and then I think I just I don't know connected a couple of things like an a, a love of words and some kind of inner sense that I was funny rightly or wrongly I'm sure if I went back to some of that early stuff I would cringe like crazy Um, but then since then I think I've just drifted towards writing in some capacity Um, you know even in my professional life I was the guy who ended up writing the words for the website Um, as I've discussed with you I've written wedding speeches for people I've done all sorts of things and for a while for five years I was nobly pursuing the goal of being a full-time professional comedy writer and, and had some small successes
1: <laughs> yes well the, you know you're not going to skim over it just like that otherwise i'd say yeah thanks for that we'll, yeah we'll, we'll and <laughs> yeah. um, let's go back i so what were you studying at cambridge
0: so was- um i was a like a nerd when nerd wasn't cool so i was um uh my best mate at school neil roper uh, his parents got him a zx spectrum and he loved playing the games and i persuaded my mum and dad to get me one but i was the one who was typing in all the programs out of the nerdy magazines and i wanted to make it do my thing i mean i enjoyed the games but i, I love the programming side of it so from the age of i don't know 10 or 11 maybe earlier i was that was my thing you know my, my brother was musical i was the, the computer kid um and so that was that was my background, and it was natural for me to then go on and do computer science, um, and kind of feel like I lucked my way into a very nice university. Um, but I guess my interests really aligned with something that was really sort of coming of its moment at the time, and uh, and yeah, ended up on a computer science course. The irony being it wasn't actually very interesting at all. I, I kind of that's why I went into the other things at Cambridge because I found although the, the, the lecturers were top of their field, they weren't always super passionate about undergraduate level teaching. Um, you only became interested to them interesting to them when you were sort of PhD level. So that was that was my experience anyway.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Those those poor professors. Having to teach you guys that must yeah, be good. the same old
0: stuff. Yeah, <laughs> binary logic, all of that. All yeah, of
1: that oh stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you just talk about coding, goes, no idea, no idea. But I love the fact, I love the fact that you were at Cambridge. I love the fact that obviously just the, the surroundings, the people that you were with, the people that you were mixing with. So tell me a little bit about the footlights, because obviously that's that's such a it's it's quite an iconic place to go especially for, for someone like me that comes from a, a, a sort of an acting background I love comedy as well you know any any of the acting I did was always I was was drawn to the sort of the black comedy side right. of things um so it really interests me that kind of um Cambridge lights uh the footlights thing so t- tell me a little bit about who was there and and, and what it was like
0: yeah the whole thing was fascinating um you know that expression of you know youth is wasted on the young i think maybe that opportunity to some extent was wasted on me not fully understanding it because i i went to a relatively normal school uh, happened to be good at a few of the right subjects was pals with a couple of the teachers and they said oh just for a laugh let's put you in for the cambridge exam let's put you in for the oxford exam and i was just one of those kids Lucky, I guess I was good at exams. I mean, that's a very narrow way of defining somebody's abilities, but it, it happened to play to my strengths. Yeah, so, I've um, heard
1: I heard Stephen Fry say the same thing. He's he always says he's not clever, he was just good at exams.
0: Oh, right. Yeah, I think Stephen Fry is being incredibly modest, but um <laughs> uh so yeah, I went in, felt a bit bewildered by the whole thing. I think there's there's a lot of conventions in Cambridge. I mean, like tropes that are if you've come from a certain background if you've come from the eaton or harrow you probably understand what a junior combination room is and, and and all of those societies and things and i admit it took me like a year really to get to grips with it. i found other people like me um and it was only i think what happened second year first year i think was just getting the hang of the entire thing you know you move out from home there's a lot to to get to grips with second year i just sort of reacted a bit against um all the conventional stuff and i did a, i did caving i did basically all weird hobbies and sports that were were the opposite of you know fencing and rowing and all of those uh, you know blues rugby and all of that kind of stuff that i wasn't really that that into and then third year was when i started thinking well i really ought to make the most of this only one year left um and got into the footlight side of things and i remember that just being terrifying to try and or they had these things called smokers which were the little sketch review shows which cambridge is known for and they put up a uh, they put a little poster up on the theater and um open auditions and i remember doing oh such horrible things i think like um uh, i used to be really into a comedian called stephen wright he just did all these incredible one-liners yeah. a small world but i wouldn't want to paint it and, and things like that um and i vaguely recall turning up with some shades on doing an american accent just like a really really bad version of stephen wright i think I guess i was a, kind of afraid of being me um and i didn't get into that review um and but did they did run like a weekly comedy thing that then led to some some performances and i met a couple of people rob webb rob webb was at that time uh, was already a genius unfortunately for us <laughs> he was doing i remember him doing an incredibly funny um best man sort of, uh, it's meant to be a best man speech, but it doesn't go wrong, but I think it it becomes clear that he's in love, he's gay and in love with the groom or something like that. But it's just be, almost Stephen Fry-esque, beautifully written. Yeah. Um, but got a bit involved in that and really ended up doing, our, uh, a friend and I end up doing our own sketch show. So hiring a local theater and just kind of doing a, we're probably not gonna get into the Footlights Panto, which was the, the big kind of, um, um, tent pole production of the year for f- footlights. Uh, but it has inspired us to do our own thing. So we hired the I can't remember the name of the theater now. it was a little tiny theater and sold it out, just did our own thing, very pure, role, I'm sure, but um, but just loved it. And then that turned into an Edinburgh show,
1: yeah, brilliant. I mean, it, I started in the playground doing stuff like that, but it, obviously, that wasn't that wasn't your journey, you you literally came to it at at, at Cambridge. I I was making up stuff and, and writing stuff and acting and doing uh, all of that from from sort of like seven years ago. Well old I guess probably.
0: playground wise, I, I was I was the kid who avo- I mean it's such a cliche, but I was the the clever kid who avoided getting beaten up because they could come back with a with a wise crack. So I was definitely the one trying to make jokes all the time. That that was my shtick outside of you know being a good boy and getting work done. Yeah. Um, so the comedy trying to be funny, I think was always there, but I never really considered it to be writing. I never really sat there. I think the first sketch I ever wrote was was at Cambridge. So to, to get to 18 or whatever, and that be the first time you even figure trying to write something. Funny. In fact, I remember what it was. It was a very uh, uh, obvious sketch around taking the Titanic back to the shop. Um, because it's, obviously there was a bit of a problem with it and, and obviously back then you know the shop sketch was a staple of any kind of comedy writing half of yeah. Monty Python was uh, was shop sketches
1: yeah yeah and then, so tell me a little bit about Edinburgh because we ended up uh, it turns out that we have both performed at the Bedlam Theatre in Edinburgh so how was that experience for you
0: yeah, so it was, by that point, I feel like I'd hit my stride and I knew that I wanted to do this in some, like the comedy thing in some capacity. Academically, uh, this is actually super relevant now, but um, uh, I hadn't done anything to do with uh, with AI, right? That was a, an emerging field. I'd done nothing to do with AI at Cambridge. It avoided the topic. I didn't like the lecture for whatever reason. And I remember sitting on some lovely lawn somewhere in a college and waiting for a friend to come out of an exam and was starting to read a you know a a course book but for this topic that i hadn't taken as a subject and it was ai and i thought actually this looks quite interesting so it inspired me to take that academically at edinburgh but once i was there um i quickly you know i didn't wait like i'd had at cambridge wait till the third year or whatever to to get involved like i think week one i was like where's the comedy happening <laughs> and where the comedy was happening was the bed and the people doing comedy um were the uh I think they called themselves the improverts that the name changed from from sort of term to term but again that that produced a few people that keith out of the office ewan mackintosh he was he was there um it was quite a good selection of people there and I did a term of turning up to their drop-in workshops and uh and yeah they invited me to be part of the the, the crew so I had two terms plus a couple of Edinburgh festivals that were doing that and I absolutely loved it because you were those guys were treated like rock stars I mean within that student community it was just these gang of groupies that would um turn up every Friday night to the Redland Theatre and, and watch it and they knew all the yeah, they knew all the games. They knew all the personalities. It was just a brilliant thing to be part of. And I also that crowd. Some of them were also doing stand up, so I, I got to do a bit of that as well.
1: Yeah. Well, I just remember we we booked the Bedlam from London, uh, the the group that I was with, and we ended up going up there. But obviously, not knowing that the Bedlam is is part of the Edinburgh University, isn't it? It's actually this run by the students, or it was yes, back then. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now it was an, it's an, an old church, which.
0: It's a just a lovely, lovely venue, and I think it beca- yeah it be- it is a one of the um, uh, not the super big venues, obviously, but one of the very popular venues during the festival. Yeah, um, yeah, it's just brilliant. I've got so many happy memories there. And even, like Saturday morning workshops, um, just mucking around, making stuff up. Yes. It just so appealed okay. to me. And that that instant, I've always loved that instant feedback of trying to say something funny. And getting that, you know, instantly knowing whether you've got it right or not. And I think that was what attracted me to the to the writing side or writing in a team. I think I would have loved to have been part of that era The, you know, you hear about the stories like Woody Allen. I think writing for Sid Caesar, those writers rooms where it's yes. all just about who comes up with the best line. Yeah. I just l- love that. And we managed to create that a little bit in some of the writing that we were doing. But that's a yeah. huge buzz.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is, oh, I'd, I would, I would love that. And I'm, I'm, I was never a writer back then, really, I was, it was always the acting. Uh, but the older I've got, the more I've realised that actually, when I'm devising, when I'm improvising, that's basically what I'm doing. You know, if I work with a group of people, I and we devise something, I'll be the one that will come back and write it out and script it in that way. Um, and actually, what I love about when I went to Edinburgh and the group I went with was the joy of the rehearsals because that's when you really got to play even though we were kind of we had to stick to the script which was a bit of a shame Uh, but otherwise you could just make stuff up just really riff off each other and and just make it up as you go along to a certain extent and just really play with it and that's why Edinburgh was great for that.
0: Yeah there's something magical about impro in that when people know it's made up, it's actually funny. And I've never really got to the bottom of why that is. I, I understand why it seems cleverer or maybe it's more enjoyable or there's there's a buzz around it, but it's genuinely funny funnier gets a bigger laugh it, yeah. when people know you're making it up you could improvise mm. something amazing and then deliver the same routine to an equivalent audience as scripted and it just wouldn't get the same response because of no. the different expectations. it's
1: funny isn't it I think people do, do appreciate that it's coming coming off the top of your head kind of thing and uh, it's not just the cleverness of being able to speak without actually having to stop because I do exercises in improv classes where I get people to just say one word each And it's amazing how they kind of they go off on a tangent because obviously they don't they're, they're waiting or the improvisation games where people are trying to be funny. And then they end up kind of blocking themselves because they're trying too hard to think of something clever. And actually what it is, is just say the first thing that comes to your head. You know, how how would you react in that situation? And I think it's that kind of. It, as much as it is made up and it can be fantastical, it, there's something about the honesty of just saying what comes into your head that I think is actually, kind of gets to the crux of who we are as human beings. Is that, you know.
0: That's the secret of it, really. That's what you're trying to push for is just to be real in that situation. Yeah. Just try, what, however ridiculous that situation might be, just try and be real within that. And I found um, that the improvisers I work with there were two very broad categories. There were funny people who wanted to try making it up as they go along. um, And there were more actorly people who fancied trying to be sort of funny. And I think they both bring something different to to the table. The comedians have, sometimes have really good instincts for maybe, you know, this is when to end the scene, or this is the you know, this scene has overrun. Actually, I do need a bit of a punchline to bring it to an end. Um, but the flip side of that is your average sort of comic improviser might just go for the they always go for the gag at the yeah. expense of the reality of the scene. And I found that the people with a dramatic, you know, drama background were much better at staying within the scene. Um, but I always found it was the people who recognised they were one side of that fence, but wanted to learn from the, the others that yeah. became the, the best improvisers.
1: Yeah, there's something about uh, people that want to control the uncontrollable. That's that's kind of when you get that that um, that you come up up against that wall where people people get frightened about doing improvisation because they feel like they need to be perfect or they need to actually be clever, be funny. And I think that's what stops people from doing it. Whereas, if you can get over that kind of that idea of having to be clever and perfect all the time, then actually it it flows better and it's just more enjoyable, I find, because people just let go, you know, it, which is what we do in everyday conversation. You know we don't always know the answer we're going to get exactly.
0: every normal conversation you have is improvised, and you don't have that anxiety going into it. But I think people think what improv is is, having such a quick brain that you're anticipating you've got a clever response for everything yeah and actually some of the worst scenes are where somebody go walks in with an idea in their their head and sticks with it even though it's yes. moved on and there's, yeah. a, there's a game i'm sure you know very well there's a game freeze tag where people are doing something physical on stage and you shout freeze and you you tap them and then you somehow justify their position yes in a new context Um, but time and time again with less experienced people you see they're momentarily in a position that you have an idea about but by the time you've shouted freeze and by the time they've heard freeze and by the time they've frozen they are in a different position but that person is so wedded to the funny idea they had about the position that they were in that they they kind of forced <laughs> it through and and it doesn't really work for anybody and what they need to do is assume a new position and then an idea will probably come to them once you're physically yeah. in that yeah. situation yeah. it'll probably come to you but yeah it requires a bit of a leap of faith isn't
1: it it does and i, I, I yeah I I would recommend anybody and everybody try improvisation because it is so freeing, you know, that all that kind of locked-in sense of who we should be and and what we should represent, kind of. If you can get rid of all that, then actually you can walk into any situation with a little bit of improv and the fun and the playfulness that comes with it. You can take that outside of the, the improv session and into your everyday life, and actually it just kind of frees you up for any kind of conversation, I think. Yeah. So how then did we go from from there into the writing because you you call yourself an IT nerd and you had a few <laughs> years of being IT nerd but then you kind of you switched you got back into the comedy how did how did that happen yeah
0: so I mean for many years I, I don't know something about my background was fairly um, you know I need to get a proper job need to move out of parents need to you know earn my place in the world so the even though I loved it I think the comedy thing always seemed like a fun hobby and I never either had the courage or confidence to say right I'm just gonna move to London and do you know do like the Ed Sheeran equivalent of comedy because I was really good at the computer thing and enjoyed it that was a natural career for me so the comedy side was always the the thing I was doing at weekends or evenings and and, and things like that so a couple of friends that I made in Edinburgh we they, a lot of people gravitate from Cambridge and Edinburgh, obviously, to London, and built up a set of friends there that were also interested in writing, getting stuff on, trying to get something on TV. The goal was, you know, BBC Two sitcom or something or sketch show would would, would have been amazing. But we used to get together and write um, silly sketches and and, and and things like that, and send you know send them off, try and get try and get some attention. And we did actually in the end get some uh i think tiger aspect the, the whole um just production screening process is so unbelievably frustrating uh, we so we had a we had an idea which was a fairly high concept but it was basically we loved um airplane the movie the humor where there's always something happening like you could watch it three times and spot something new so our pitch was every week we're going to go to a different location and have this kind of set of things like you could be in an airport and there'd be something funny happening at the checkout desk but then we'd get distracted by a baggage handler and the camera would go in on them and there'd be something funny happening then and then you know there might be you know a pilot chatting somebody up so it would be we would be in the world of that location and the consistency would be the comedy style this kind of just constant jokes visual jokes so we pitched this um, to a whole bunch of people the bbc directly uh, we pitched it to production companies like tiger aspect and fairly quickly tiger aspect invited us in and we went through like a development cycle with them um which was okay it's kind of the, the stereotype of you know they they start to do things by committee and remove the things that made it distinctive but I'm not sure i'm sure that's not everybody's experience but we went through a cycle and then it just didn't it didn't happen and that was upsetting we moved on to other things and then about a year later we got a call from the bbc saying oh we want to invite you in we love this idea that you I think for some reason that i can't remember it was called jacuzzi nine millimeter i don't really remember that <laughs> arnold schwarzenegger line was nine millimeter um for some reason we called it jacuzzi nine Millimeter. anyway um and BBC said, oh, we love this idea. Let's, uh, you know, let's get you guys in. We think there's some potential here. And uh, so we phoned each other around and said, oh, who sent it to the BBC again? Did anybody? I didn't even know they were considering it. And it turned out that it was from that when we sent it like 18 months ago, they'd only just sort of got round to to picking it up and getting in contact. So we'd gone through a full uh, round with Tiger Aspect. But we did that and that was fun and ultimately uh, I guess it got a couple of stages away from like a BBC2 pilot commission for this thing and they sat on it and sat on it and by the end they said, oh it's a bit like that thing Green Wing that they've got on Channel 4 and it's like well it wasn't three years ago when we pitched (laughs) it, it is now, You you wait long enough it's gonna, something's gonna come along um so we just kept writing and then the group sort of split up and i was writing with one other guy and um just i just couldn't get it out of my system to try and get something something on actually one one early thing while i was still at, at university was there was a, a radio 4 show called weekending did you know that it's like no. satirical um uh, show in very radio four style gently satirical but it was one of the few bbc avenues where you could uh, it would take unsolicited material so there was like this fax number and if you faxed it on a certain day with your idea for some thing that was in the news that week and they liked the sketch then it might it might get on and we got a, me and my friend at university got a couple of things on and that that was a huge a huge wow. buzz um, and I think that made us think, oh, maybe there's something to this. If the BBC will pay us for a few silly ideas, maybe we're not completely, um, you know, fooling ourselves.
1: Yeah. So how did how did writing for the BBC come around? Was it from that from that point?
0: So it was kind of a long process, really. So that while I was still doing the IT stuff earnestly and doing fairly well at that. Um, we still pitching a lot of the, these ideas, longer form ideas. And then I kind of hit a 10 year mark in my IT career, just got, was doing stuff that was less and less interested in and just thought, screw this. And I went off and did that traveling thing, but I did it in my sort of thirties rather than sort of twenties and, uh, went to India, went to Thailand. And during that amazing five, six month trip, I just thought I need to scratch this itch properly. Otherwise I'm going to be the person sort of you know lying on their deathbed wondering if i should have given the comedy thing a better go so i sort of um yeah kicked in the uh, the job and um just said right i'm going to be a comedy writer so my friend and i we were writing together um sending lots of little sketches off to the bbc getting this was just as internet comedy was starting to take off a little bit so there was um uh, i probably pre-YouTube, but things going on. So we were pitching lots of little web projects that we thought might uh, not need too big a budget. And one of the things that we did, to mention to you, which kind of looking back is is a bit insane and I think it did drive me the closest to insanity I've ever been because I needed a big old rest afterwards. But we came up with this idea of a um, uh, it was just as Big Brother was uh, within a couple of years, a Big Brother coming out and my friend Mark and I had a some fairly strong views about the toxicity of reality TV, or at least where it was at that point. So we came up with this satirical idea called Debt Monkey, which was a guy, um, my, my friend Mark, who was more of the actor of the two of us. Uh, and the idea was he had been, uh, would have his student debts, like 20,000 pounds worth of student debts paid off by a an unscrupulous production company on the condition that for six months, he was sort of there, puppet and would have a, a an embedded cameraman living with him filming him every second of the day and every week he would get an email from the production company um, with a new challenge um, and we, I would fil- I was the cameraman so basically the show was me filming mostly him, the banter between us and the challenge that we had set him and we would de- deliberately paint ourselves into corners and get ourselves into silly situations and um, and we did that. We did an e- two episodes a week for six months, completely shot it ourselves, Learned how to edit, Learned how to do all the production. Um, yeah, it was insane. I loved it. But at the end of it, I needed a holiday on my own for about <laughs> 10 days. I remember going to go so just off of Malta and just wanting to be on my own because I think I'd gone a bit crazy.
1: Oh, my God. Did you So who did you pitch that to?
0: So we, what we did is we were making that and then we would just kept telling people about it and we were still writing other things when we had time and it got us a little bit noticed by the BBC. They just had a new department online sort of for online comedy and we were pitching some ideas there. I think that was probably the most creative period. We came up with all these what we thought were brilliant ideas um, and it's always the idea that you're not that sure about that gets picked up and the thing that you think is genius gets totally ignored but one of the ideas we came up with as part of that pitching frenzy and having had this reality show spoof reality show as like some kind of proof to get our foot through the door that we weren't just total chances um we pitched this very random idea which was imagine henry VIII is alive and well um and has all of his sort of historical preoccupations hatred of the pope um huge appetite all of those type things but for reasons unexplained um lives in the suburbs and is obsessed with facebook and twitter and all of that so our pitch was henry the eighth through shot just through his webcam doing like flaming people on twitter and just having you know just talking at the screen really so we, we got very clever at working out formats that would be incredibly cheap to (laughs) film.
1: We're not ending here, just taking a quick break. And we'll be back very soon after we hear from our friend, fellow podcaster and master of verbal communication, Andrew Thorpe.
0: We're all in the persuasion business, whether that's pitching to a potential client, selling ourselves in a job interview or convincing a teenager to tidy their room. How we frame our message and how we deliver it makes all the difference. And this is the theme of my podcast, Leaning Forward. I'm Andrew Thorpe. I'm a speaker, a trainer and a storyteller. And I'd love you to tune in to our latest episode. And um, how we pitched it was Mark and I would both write it. And Mark, being more the actor, would be Henry VIII. And we thought a few grand from the BBC, lovely jubbly, um, and that will be fun. And they came back to us, and they loved the format, but they uh, when they invited us in, they said, we've got one small change. Would you mind, instead of Mark playing Henry VIII, if we got Brian Blessed to play Henry VIII? Eighth? Yeah. Um, and I was like, well, I was never going to be in it. So I'm very happy for Brian Blessed to be in it. And my mate, to his credit, was like, well, if you're going to be replaced by anybody as Henry VIII in a in a comedy show, make it Brian Blessed. Um, and we ended up writing two seasons. Like they were uh, episodes were maybe three or four minutes each, six, eight episodes in a season. And we did one exactly in that format that I've explained to you. And then they wanted to do another format, but change it up a little bit. So we had him living in some caravan park and it was a bit more shot. Um, Wasn't just through the webcam. It was a slightly different format, but that, that was to see even on a small scale, to see something, an idea you had and then got to write and then got somebody famous to be in it and then got to be in the location where they were shooting it and almost doing a little bit of side directing of Brian Blessed was, was, was awesome. Wow, that's Um, that
1: is quite an experience. That's amazing. Yeah. So, so when you say there were like three or four minutes, and it was online, so it didn't make it to terrestrial or it didn't get onto the TV. It was it a a a web thing? It was a web
0: only format, really. It was around. uh, So, what was it? They um, BBC Online had a whole bunch of clips that they would put up there. It was also the time when BBC Three was starting to go online i think it came back off online but um so it wasn't really a format that was designed to be um you know terrestrial tv or anything it was it was too short but it was shot to those standards and it got i think it won a couple of little awards um so yeah and and at that time this seemed like the new you know, this was the new platform, you know, online. It was almost like, who wants to be on TV anymore? And, and you know, in some way, I guess through Netflix that has come to, to fruition, but for, yeah. a, for a heady period, it just looked like short form stuff was uh, was was the way to go. And that's what we were good at.
1: Yeah, how, how did it feel being a writer? I mean, I've, I've spoken to writers before, like screenwriters that have had things changed by either by the director, producers, TV companies, whoever, film companies. Did you come across that at all? I mean, obviously you said a little bit from from a previous thing, but when, when you're actually on set and you're in amongst it all, did it get changed?
0: Not really. I think the the, the Henry it was called a Henry 8.0, by the way, because it was like a technical, it was a, he was a tech obsessed. Um, but it was a small enough project. And the production company called monkey were really really good i don't recall anything really being changed i mean we we had some discussions when we were working on the scripts about what we could and couldn't get away with um and there were some weird sensitivities like you know and um, we played a lot on his hatred for the for the pope actually that was one of the more surreal things that i that i did i think when the um uh the the new pope well i've forgotten the word not inaugurated but anyway new pope comes on board um, I got paid by the BBC to live tweet the entire inauguration um, as this fictional character, Henry 8.0. Um, half of the... It was getting lots of response. They trusted us to just not go say anything too offensive. Um, and there was just a range of people. Some people think thought he was a real king. Some no. people thought it was, it was actually Brian Blessed doing it um but yeah that was so surreal and, and and such good fun but they didn't it didn't really change very much we got a lot more of that in the earlier for the the tv yeah. um the tv uh, development process that we went yeah. through
1: and how how was brian in the part
0: he was like kind of everything you might expect and and more um <laughs> he would I, like he's very sweary which probably isn't a huge surprise but um I, I mean, I joked with people immediately afterwards, but I think it's true. I heard the rudest of all words more in more in two days with him than I think I'd, I'd heard up until that point in my entire life. Um, and uh, yeah, he's just massively passionate, just a, a huge force of nature. Not as tall as you think. Um, and yeah, we 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 had some fun moments that I can't really share but yeah he's a total legend what I did find with him is he's just a story machine and he will tell you these incredible stories and your brain is saying that can't possibly be true I mean one of the stories was about he was going to be the oldest person in space there was some space trip he was going to go on they wanted to see what the effect of a set you know of low gravity on a septuagenarian's body was and he tell you because he's a famous, well, he's a, um, a, a noted mountaineer as well. So he's got some quite dark stories about what's happened, his experiences on the mountain. But he'd tell you 10 of these stories in a day and you think there's no way all of those can be true. And yet I have literally no idea which ones are <laughs> and which ones aren't. And some of the craziest ones, you then do a bit of research and it's like, yeah, actually, that that was true. Yeah, so he's lived think, a life, believe yeah, me. Yeah, I
1: bet he has. I bet he has. Is that is that still available to view? Can that be found online?
0: Obviously, he, he, he took. I think they. Um, you might be able to find some bits on on YouTube if you type. Um, uh, yeah, Henry 8.0 It's called, and uh, yeah, it was it was really good fun, and it just it got a lot of um, a lot of people were very fond of it, just because it really played to him as a character.
1: Yeah. Excellent. So where where did you go from there then? We just from there. we started at the beginning and gone. We're going all the way through. So yeah, from from writing for for the BBC. Sort of, how did how did you decide that that wasn't for you? Or well, I was doing.
0: So after that, I then got invited to go for six months or so. I didn't know it was going to be six months at the time. Um, So I was in that comedy department that was doing comedy shorts and like sketches and very topical stuff um they hired me as like a two three day a week producer editor so i was working with i i was kind of the, the equivalent of the guy 20 years ago who was sitting the other side of the fax machine waiting for the the ideas to come through so i was like that guy but for the online you know age so people were sending us sketches and um, i got to decide which ones we might we might film um and uh, that was a really good fact it was called Sprout, I think it was called. Basically, it was we would do three or four online funnies per week inspired by something happening in the news or something in the zeitgeist. And in fact, um, our, our mutual friend or, or um, colleague, uh, John Burkhart, I met him through uh, through that because he was doing some stuff with the BBC where we had a whole weekend locked in the BBC trying to create something viral. Uh, called Urgent Genius, I think it was. So that that was the collaboration between him and what he was doing, and this BBC Comedy Unit that I was that I was working with. Um, so that was brilliant fun. And one of the most surreal things that didn't play out until probably years later was we had a. I'm um, a big, ra- I'm I'm a pretty big Radiohead fan, or at least I was at the time. But there was a bit of a running joke that like every album became more obscure and like harder to love than, than than the last i used to like all the really early rocky stuff so we got I, don't, I didn't come up with this sketch but i got to direct it somebody pitched this idea of like a an aa group where people showed up and it was like for um, recovering radiohead fans who finally found the courage to admit that maybe you know in rainbows wasn't as good as the bends or whatever yeah. so we um we shot that we, we the director had to pull out at the very last minute so i ended up directing it in some church hall that we only had sort of use of for four hours anyway we shot it it was a very nicely written sketch functionally shot by me but it was fine and it did modestly well on the bbc site but years and years later um i remember listening to a um, um uh, adam buxton podcast where he's got the guitarist from radiohead johnny greenwood who's got Oscars for yeah, yeah. uh, Will Be Blood and all of that, um, just talking about this sketch and how much they both enjoyed it. And I was like, that that sums up really my weird internet comedy career that you can do some silly sketch about a band you love and then years later, <laughs> <laughs> the member of the band gets to see it. And then somehow through a podcast, I get to learn that he's seen it and what he thinks of it. It was just this very strange. Yeah. Sort of, uh, see, that's, that is
1: the weird world that we live in these days, yeah. isn't it? That anything you put out there is findable at some point by anybody in the world. It's incredible.
0: It's exactly. Incredible. exactly. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, go
1: on. No, I was going to, I wanted to get onto the online courses. I mean, I'm I'm assuming that there is something of your comedy that you bring to your online.
0: (laughs) I yeah, I mean, what happened comedy wise, so I did that for five years, got an agent, got a few things um, uh, off the ground. But I just got to a point where, uh, you know, it was successful enough to feel like I'd scratched that itch. But it was never really going to, for me at least, going to uh, compete with what I'd done before in terms of you know, putting food on the table, uh, paying a mortgage, that kind of stuff. Um, so I went through a period for a while where I was doing a few different things. I had some family complications going on. My mum and dad got a little bit ill, so I, I couldn't really get a full-time job. So I was, I'll admit... Jackie I was dabbling in all sorts of things that might somehow connect my threads of things that I was interested in I ended up doing a lot of Toastmasters public speaking I ran the Bloomsbury speakers club for a couple of years in central London Um, when that was brand new had a ball doing that and got into doing lots of um, funny contest speeches and that kind of thing but that led to me um, writing a few speeches for people professionally uh, and then I found that most the the biggest set of people who want you to write a funny speech are people who are about to give a wedding speech. So I had a little side business for a while helping people write wedding, funny wedding speeches, which was, which was good fun. So I had, so I had a few, a couple of years where I was just doing a few different things, trying things out, you know, popping back to my hometown, uh, you know, every weekend looking after the folks. Um, and then I, yeah, I signed up for a call. There's a guy called John Morrow. I know Mark Masters knows uh, quite well. And he's this inspirational character who built an entire online business, despite the fact that he's got spinal muscular atrophy and can't move below the neck and does all sorts of amazing things with voice recognition and and all of that. But I took a course that he, that he launched um, because I wanted to learn how to promote my wedding speech business. One of the brilliant things about that kind of business, I could do it totally remotely, which suited me down to the ground. Um, And I learned pretty quickly that his method wasn't really going to work for my business because funnily enough, when somebody has lost, uh, done their wedding speech, um, they suddenly lose interest in wedding speeches. Whereas this course was a bit more about building a following and loyalty and and all of that. Um, But one of the things he used to teach was get pally with online influencers because they will be able to connect you and spread the word. So a couple of months in, when he sent an email around looking for an instructor on his course, I literally applied just so that he would know who the hell I was. And maybe one day when I asked for him for a favor, he'd go, oh, you were that strange Brit who sent me a, uh, uh, you know, who had the audacity to apply for this job. Anyway, long story, half short, I got the job that I didn't even really <laughs> intend to get, which was being an instructor on, an, on a writing course. This course was fundamentally about writing. Um, And then I spent seven years at that company, basically started off as an instructor, and then I rebuilt the course that I originally took. And then I built more courses. And by the end of that, I was immersed in this kind of weird virtual world of online training, working with a bunch of people you'd never physically met. We were doing all the Zoom stuff way before COVID forced us to do that. Um, and I was, yeah, working for a, a US based, an Austin based entrepreneur for sort of seven years. That I only, you know, met twice, um, and then decided to go and do my own thing. But the natural piece that I that sort of stood me out, if you like, was just that experience of building courses at scale i mean he was a brilliant marketer and or still is a brilliant marketer and so he got a lot of people into those courses so i can liter- legitimately say courses i built you know had thousand thousand plus people in them they were making made over a million dollars yeah um so it was a, it was a nice little pairing really my yeah. job his job was to get people in the door my job was to make sure they weren't disappointed when they got there
1: Fabulous. So I just <laughs> want to—I want to go back on that though. So you, you were saying you were an instructor. Does that mean you were the, the face on the video, explaining? What, what do you mean when you say you were? Yeah. A so yeah, good
0: question. So no, it was more a um, uh, like a support instructor. So this course was all about uh, guest blogging. So basically, writing for big publications like Forbes Online or Huffington Post or or the the then burgeoning set of of blogs that actually were becoming really quite successful millions of views so that the basic idea was if you write a really good article that you give for free to one of these big sites they will let you put your byline at the bottom and link to your own site so it's a way of building your your business but getting your stuff accepted means going over a few hurdles and one is just knowing how to pitch but a lot of it is actually being able to to write well so i um the, the course actually looking back i always thought it was brilliant value for anybody that actually put in the work because it was 600 bucks but you got endless revisions on for a year i think anything you wrote you'd get a professional editor um looking at it breaking it down criticizing the structure the language all of that they even had a professional proofreader edit your stuff for you if you got accepted so i was one of those in- instructors basically i would get screeds of student submissions some great some terrible um, and give them feedback in an online forum and then get the next version of that and tell them when it was ready to go basically
1: yeah and so they so they were the students of the online course the people doing the writing so they bought a writing course
0: they bought a, yeah they bought a course about pitching and writing articles that were good enough to get accepted by top publications so as part of that they got support in an online forum where they could submit their 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 work and I was one of well I was the main instructor at that point who was receiving those submissions reviewing them and giving them detailed feedback so I think again that the BBC experience was useful for that the writing experience and also the experience of editing those those random submissions that would come in because I could you know you you get an eye for it and I I think it's it's one thing to be able to forensically break down somebody's piece of work what's right what's working what's not but actually that often isn't the most useful thing to do you might want to just say here are the three things you should try and achieve in the next draft because there's no point in massively critiquing a whole section which then isn't even in the next draft so yeah. it's about how do you use that time efficiently
1: yeah and and I was going to ask um then what what is the secret of selling an online course I mean <laughs> you said the guy that you worked for out in the states in in Austin the entrepreneur how was how what is the secret to actually doing putting together a successful online course
0: yeah, there's two different things to that, really, and the, where most people struggle, which is really common to a lot of, it's not just online courses, just any really service or, or business, is the, the the selling side. I mean, that the hard truth is the easiest way to sell an online course is really to have already have a big following and a, a demand for what you do. And then you build a course that meets some of that demand. A lot of people um because the online course industry is a bit of a hype machine and a lot of it is fueled by the gazillion platforms out there that, that want everybody to build a course there is this feeling that you you know anybody in fact i've seen this in a facebook ad it's like anybody with an interest in a computer can create an online you know make an online course business um but actually tons of people if you hang around in the groups uh, the facebook groups for these platforms and these communities you have so many people that have disappeared into their man or woman cave for four months built this course and then they can't sell a single copy of it because they they didn't have an audience they didn't have anybody that trusted them to do what it is that they're claiming to be able to do so i mean the 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 flip answer to how do you sell an online course is yeah already having a demand for for it and then building one based on that that demand. And yeah. um, the slightly less flip answer is um, there there are three ways really. If you if you as long as you've built a course that that meets a particular need, um, you need to get it in front of an audience. And I always say you can um, you buy, uh, borrow, or build. So you buy an audience. So you you know you take out some ads you borrow an audience so you talk to somebody who already you know they're an influencer or they they've got a complementary business and they already have an email list or a social media following and you cut a deal with them whereas if they promote your course to their audience they'll get a cut um or you build your own audience which is the best but it's also the the slowest mm. um so that's kind of what i recommend to people is that they um they, it, it's an organic thing you start slow uh it's not that i won't work with people who don't have an audience but i say well look the way this is going to work you might build a, a prototype of your course and then just use your existing connections to get five or ten people into it as as beta students and then then sort of build it out from there it's a it's a longer game
1: yeah because i'm gonna i'm gonna show you on your website which is uh is this is this is not suitable for misty-eyed unicorn chasing
0: (laughs) yeah you can see i'm pushing the branding uh, (laughs) a a little bit there yeah i I, i'm trying i mean i'm sure you've heard this sort of uh uh, branding concept of it's not just who you're attracting it's who you're repelling with your with, with your message and i think there are a lot of people that have bought into not through their own fault but bought into that idea that it's you're just one course video and one course platform away from retiring to a desert island just watching your paypal account fill up it's, it's just not really like that and um i have spent time working with or chatting to people like that and they're just not really my my crowd i don't want to persuade somebody to build an online course but if they've got a good reason to do it um, if they for instance one classic um use case for people that i work with tends to be let's say you're a, you're a really busy service provider you're a coach or you're a consultant someone like that you you're really good at what you do you already get paid to get a result for somebody your problem is that there's only 40 50 hours in your week uh, and you can only do that for so many people so there's an income ceiling to that there's an impact ceiling to that as well whereas if you build a course then you can potentially uh leverage that to deliver either some of your service for you to free up your time or it might mean you can do a scaled down version of it that people can buy who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford to hire you um, one-to-one so it's it's tapping into some existing uh, demand yeah. one of the things i always say is it's, it's a it's a commonly um Uh, a common tip to say to people that you should know what problem your course solves so what problem does my course solve for you but i think you should also know what problem your course solves for you as a course creator so if the problem is i don't have you know i have more clients than i can deal with then a course could help that or i don't have a low ticket product to offer people who are coming to me a course could solve that problem but if you are, your problem is i haven't re- retired to my desert island yet um <laughs> then yeah I'm, I'm not your i'm not your guy
1: <laughs> yeah i have to say that you've just described me and my business so <laughs>
0: yeah that's yeah, i mean it's
1: there i've got it on my vision board there. April online course, it's, it's got, yeah, that might be April t- 2024 or 2025, but I'm, <laughs> I was hoping it might be 2023, but we'll see, we'll see. Um Yeah, it's been fabulous talking to you, really, really great. So what, what have you got coming up next, Glenn? What's, what's on the horizon
0: for you? So working on a couple of things business-wise, so um, I, uh, when I uh, left the, the previous company, I had some what i really wanted to do was create a pretty robust method for for taking people through a course process so i, I worked with a few different clients to hone that process and then built it into a course it's a little bit meta but i have a course that teaches people to to, to build a course but i uh, had seven lovely people go through that in a in a beta version towards the end of last year loads of feedback loads of good progress And so one thing I'm doing is just working on getting that feedback into the course and then launching it as more of a a packaged program. It will probably be like a a one-year program with some support from me. um, And that's called Build Your Best Course. That's the, the, the program, if you like. But one of the interesting things I found going through that is that you can get people that are super serious about building a course they go through all the the nice pre-work that i get them to go through about audience and and the structure of the course curriculum and then they hit the content creation um, and it's just such a different change of pace and different set of skills required um, that they really really slow down so actually i've taken a short break and i'm working on a very tactical course um, working title course video confidence, which is just about how do you create even just one lesson? How do you make that a simple, you know, no fuss process? Because I think some a lot of people could benefit from just learning that skill. But also it will free up people who do want to build a bigger course. So yeah. I'm working on those two things, basically.
1: Yeah. I mean, you you very kindly sent me a course creation course that you've done was that is that the one you're talking about Uh, yeah well I've
0: got a free yeah um just as I left the the old business I kind of uh, as a way of building my following and my email list I created a 20-part course it's like a beginner's course called the online course sprint um the pitch was uh if my old boss if I built this course for my old boss he would definitely be charging at least 500 bucks for it um, so I got a few people to promote it on that basis. And um, so absolutely, people can go to my website and get on that. It's, it's these bite-sized, like four or five-minute videos. It's um, I position it as sort of as it uh, fun, fast-paced and free. So if you go on my website, glenlong.com, if you put slash sprint on the end, that will take you directly to the page. But you can find it from that that link as well.
1: Yeah, and I have to say, it's it's very good. And I have got to that point where I'm now like, oh, okay, so now I need to do something about it. (laughs) Weirdly, I
0: like to dissuade people from, you know, if I dissuade more people than I persuade to create a course, that's good because I think most people who want to probably shouldn't and I'm just here to help the ones that that should.
1: Yeah, Uh, well, perhaps we'll have that discussion after I end record. (laughs) Brilliant. Oh, thank you for your time today. It's been a lovely conversation. I just love talking about comedy and everything that you do and everything that you've done. And I'm looking forward to seeing you on Creator Day. For yes, absolutely. Media. Absolutely. So that, yeah. All
0: right. Well, look, Jackie, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for inviting and me. And
1: you, Glenn.
0: And, uh, have a brilliant weekend.
1: And you. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, then please leave a five-star review on whichever platform you're on. And if you'd like to receive information about future guests or would like to know more about Power to Speak coaching, then sign up for our fortnightly newsletter at powertospeak.co.uk. And remember, if you, like all of us, are in the persuasion business and need inspiration or tips on the art of verbal communication, then tune in to Leaning Forward with our friend Andrew Thorpe. Find Leaning Forward on your favourite podcast platform. Bye for now.